going on? It's Tasha McNerney, and I am here with another edition, another episode of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast. And today I am really lucky to be joined by not only a fantastic anesthesiologist, but a really fun person to have a beer with, and that is Dr. Kristen Messenger. Kristen Messenger is a DVM, but also a DACVAA and a DACVCP, that's clinical pharmacology, because one specialty wasn't enough for her. And Kristen currently works at North Carolina State University, and we are going to be talking about all kinds of things that have to do with anesthesia in the world as we know it today. So thanks for joining us, Dr. Messenger. Hey, Tasha, thanks so much for having me on the Nerds Podcast. I've been listening to all your episodes and really uh, have been excited to finally be on the show. So thanks for the invite. Yay! Well, yeah, we're so glad to have you. I mean, uh, for those of you guys who don't know or maybe didn't attend this last year's Anesthesia Nerd Symposium, Dr. Messenger was one of our lecturers and she absolutely killed it. Uh, because she has so many letters after her name, you should just absolutely listen to everything she says because she is incredibly smart and knows her shit. So speaking of knowing her shit, let's talk about some of that shit today. What we're going to talk about COVID. That's what's going on, right? That's what's causing us to, you know, freak out. We're changing the way we do our veterinary practices. We're changing um, the way we think about anesthesia and we're worried and we've got some emails. Can you shed some light on the potential anesthesia or pain management drug shortages that some veterinary clinics might be experiencing uh, with what's going on? And what kind of drug shortages have you guys experienced at North Carolina State? Sure. Yeah, it's a really tough time in the world right now, and it's definitely affecting veterinary medicine, you know, obviously, as well as human medicine. So um, the drug shortages are actually a real problem. And for those of you who are listening that work in the United States, at least, if you're not familiar on where to find this information, if you just Google FDA drug shortages, you should pretty much be taken straight to a link for the list of human drug shortages. Now, if you wanna see what the veterinary drug shortages are, then pretty much Google that same thing, but add veterinary drug shortages, and you'll <laughs> be taken to a different website, still the FDA, it's just the Center for Veterinary Medicine, and you'll find the veterinary drug shortage list. You'll also find, as of today, that the veterinary drug shortage list is much shorter than the human drug shortage list. The list on the human side is actually quite extensive and is involving almost all of the drugs that we use in the practice of veterinary anesthesia. So I'll just give you a few examples. Um, right now, the commonly used human labeled anesthetic drugs like propofol and ketamine are on the shortage list. The uh, opioids, all of the pure mu agonist opioids injectables are all on the shortage list. All of the local anesthetics are included on that list right now. Uh, atropine, uh, yeah, atropine and epinephrine are on the list. And then the commonly used blood pressure support medications like dopamine, dobutamine, and norepinephrine are also on that list. So that's a real problem. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really bad yeah. time. I mean, you can imagine that on the, in the human hospitals, you know, they have all of their patients that need all of these medications 
we're using them in veterinary medicine, of course, off label, because some of these products, we actually don't have veterinary labeled options. So we don't have veterinary labeled dobutamine or dopamine, for example. So we have to use what is available on the human side. Okay. So, you know, uh, we have a lot of people kind of all over run the gamut uh, listening to this podcast, but a majority of them are working, you know, in general practice, private practice. Um, So for those people who are working in general practice who might now be seeing a little bit more emergency procedures, at least in our practice, we're seeing more trauma procedures, right? More hit by cars, more uh, dog fights, uh, you know, dogs inside the house and stuff like that. And we always go with our pyramid opioids. But if you have a clinic and you are trying to limit the amount of opioids you're using um, and you want to kind of limit your stuff overall, I mean, now that you're saying, you know, ketamine, man, like I, I freaking love ketamine. So now in my, in my head, I'm like, oh shit, I got to watch the ketamine now. Uh, so, you know, to limit those options, kind of moving forward in best practices, what can we do to make sure that our patients are still getting really good pain control and good anesthesia if we are limited in the opioids or even the adjuncts that we can use? Sure. And well, actually, let me try to answer this question in multiple parts. Uh, because I think there's several different components to the statements that you just made, and I want to make sure we address all of them. Um, Besides the other little side comment I'd like to say is that I love ketamine also. (laughs) It's like my favorite (laughs) desert. It's my favorite desert island drug. It's the best ever. And although the human labeled ketamine is on the shortage list, we still have veterinary labeled products that are currently still available. So I guess that's the bit of good news is that if there's any veterinary labeled products like the ketamine that you can get from Zoetis or the Propofol 28 or even the Cymbidol buprenorphine, for example, or your Dextomator, which I know you love. Oh my God, forget it. If we ran out of Dextomator, like I'm not working, I'll work at Starbucks. I'm not coming to work. (laughs) Yes. Exactly. But the good news is those veterinary labeled products, we still have them. The bad news is we don't have any veterinary labeled full mu agonists that I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, we have Torbugesic, we have Butorphanol, and then we have Cymbidol, Buprenorphine, at least here in the United States. Now, I think in some other countries and over in Europe, I think there are some veterinary labeled full mu agonist drugs. So that might be a benefit to those listeners. But anyway, you made the comment about you guys are seeing pretty much only emergency cases and our hospital is actually doing the same. So our patient population is kind of different and we are looking at those more critically ill animals, the animals that absolutely must have a procedure. And I think right now that's the right thing to do. I mean, we're trying to minimize, you know, our staff going in, we're trying to minimize exposure to the general public, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's many reasons for it, but also during these times of drug shortages, we're, if we're able to conserve what we already have and then be able to use those for the patients that absolutely must have them, then it's a, you know, it's a really nice option rather than us just using these drugs for patients that are coming in for routine procedures that could wait until we're not in this crisis. So, you know, regardless, 
we still have animals that require full mu agonists. They require multimodal analgesia. They certainly require the use of multiple different products. I mean, that's basically how we roll <laughs> over, you know, in the anesthesia department and the, in the ICU, we like to provide as many different analgesic options as possible, you know, for many reasons, clearly, I don't need to describe that to all the listeners, but Basically, what we're doing right now, again, is we're minimizing the use of our full mu agonist. So if we have an animal that needs a fentanyl CRI, of course, we're going to do that. But if we have a procedure that maybe is not quite so invasive or painful, and we can get away with using the Cymbidol off-label, for example, then we're going to do that for those patients. And, and so I'm speaking about dogs. You know, obviously, if we yeah. were using, if we were doing something in cats, we could use the Symbodol according to the label, or we could use it extra label, like that's fine. But okay. yeah, we're trying to really save the, the fentanyl and the hydromorphone and the methadone for those animals that really truly need it. Uh, we're still able to provide ketamine CRIs and dexmedetomidine CRIs for the healthier ones. You know, I think lidocaine is going to probably be difficult to come by in the near future. So right now we, we still have it, but I would anticipate, <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I would anticipate that people oh might, my God. I like, oh. they might have trouble getting it. So then we can't do I love a lidocaine CRI. I do too. I mean, it's great. They're all like, oh. all of these CRIs are just wonderful. Yeah. Um, you have the facility and the means to administer them. So okay. outside of that, if we're just looking at, you know, bolus administration of some analgesics, you know, we have at least some longer acting opioids like buprenorphine. So that one is not on the shortage list, even on the human side. So whether or not you're using just, you know, buprenorphine versus Cymbidol, it doesn't really matter. We also still have fentanyl patches. If I don't know if you're a fan of those, they, I have mixed feelings sometimes. Yeah. I feel like sometimes they work and I can see that they're working. And then sometimes I'm like, did I, did I even put the thing on? Right? Like what this, this animal doesn't seem like they're getting anything. Yeah. Other things that we want to make sure we're doing, if we can incorporate a non-steroidal into the analgesic plan, I'm always going to recommend that. Of course, you know, you mentioned you have a lot of critical patients and those animals might not be able to tolerate the non-steroidal. So that's, a major disadvantage for them, but it's also the right thing to do when they can't have it. And, you know, lastly, I think the one thing I've left out are some local regional techniques. And whether right. or not we're in a shortage, I'm always going to recommend a local regional technique whenever you can. Yeah. You uh, taught, uh, you were a co-instructor at the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerd Symposium and for our local regional lab. And we went through a whole uh, gamut of all of the different local blocks that a practice could be using. And there's a whole bunch of them out there. Um, what are some favorite local blocks that you would recommend? Just like the general practice should be able to do, doesn't need like super fancy equipment. They don't need to spend thousands of dollars to get anything. What are some things that general practice should be able to do to provide local regional anesthesia? Yeah, great question. And that was a great lab, by the way. It was a it lot was. of fun. So, <laughs> thanks for letting me be part of it. 
you can do a lot with just a needle, a syringe, and a bottle of local anesthetic. You know, you don't have to have an ultrasound or a nerve stimulator or all these fancy tools. And in fact, these days, I feel like the only blocks I'm good at are those really basic blocks that anybody can do. So um, the things I guess I would focus on are incisional infiltration blocks. So anywhere we've made a cut, we can infiltrate some local anesthetic into that area. So that would be like a linea block if you're doing a laparotomy or if you're, I don't know, if you're suturing like a fresh laceration, you could go ahead and put some local in that spot. Dental blocks might be a little controversial right now because it would depend on the reason for the dental. You know, if we had a cat that wasn't eating because he's got severe gingivostomatitis, then dental, like to go ahead and do that, you have to do the dental. But if the dentals can wait until we are not in this crisis, I guess I would try to put those off if possible. Rum blocks would be great if you have a dog that got hit by a car or it jumped off the couch and fractured its radius ulna. You know, let's go ahead and throw in um, a radial ulnar median musculocutaneous block. You don't need anything to do that. You can totally do it blinded. It's, you know, infiltration, it's lovely. I have never done a rum block. Will you believe that? No, so, Tasha, how is that? I have not, because I usually have all the fancy toys and I'm doing the ultrasound, brachial plexus and all this other stuff. So for those listening who don't know what the rum block would be utilized for, uh, can you explain that to us? Yeah, so that would be any procedure distal to the elbow. So it could actually, right now, again, an elbow arthroscopy, totally elective. But if you had a lot of trauma to the uh, distal forelimb, anything distal to the elbow, this rum block is your best friend. And it is so easy. It's literally two injections, one on the lateral side, one on the medial side. And you just deposit a large amount of local anesthetic into that area and it infiltrates and soaks all of those nerves. Um, but it's not going to work for anything like in the shoulder or in the humeral area. Yeah, it's great. Um, and if anybody's ever, there's a nice paper in veterinary surgery from a couple years ago that has some nice pictures describing how to do this block. So that's great. You know, the epidurals are also still very reasonable to be doing, although I think it might be a little difficult to obtain preservative-free morphine right now. And again, a lot of our local anesthetics, I'm a little bit worried that they're going to go on back order as well. So just if you have preservative-free morphine, try to conserve it as much as you can, I guess would be my advice right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Otherwise, you know, I think the, you know, a ring block to me is somewhat like an infiltration block. It's same concept. Um, the last block that people could do would be like a retro bulbar block. So if we have a dog that has some trauma to its eye and we need to take the eye out you know retro bulbar block is very easy i mean a little practice makes perfect but you could do it before surgery if you want which is the ideal situation but if you're not comfortable doing that just go ahead and splash some local in after the eye comes out okay did i leave anything awesome. out is there anything that, so, I'm, that you do that i forgot yeah well, uh, I love the infiltrative blocks, uh, especially like anything along the incision line. Um, and at our practice, we have been utilizing a ton of noceta, 
which is the liposomal encapsulated bupivacaine that lasts 72 hours. So I don't think a lot of practices are utilizing that. Maybe a lot of universities, um, pretty sure you guys are using it. Uh, and I know we are at our practice, we're specialty in emergency, but I think that the patients, like we've been able to get patients off of opioids much faster when we're utilizing local box and noceta. Uh, I don't know if you want to add anything to it. Do you have you had good experience with it? Uh, I know that you were a part of a study that was looking at um, how long it was uh, viable once it's opened, correct? Correct. Am I getting that right? <laughs> you are absolutely correct. Um, in fact, yeah, I also have several comments to make about this topic. So keep me on keep me on track for time because I might start rambling now that you've brought it up. Uh, so noceta, I, f first of all, yeah, in, infiltration blocks, any incision, also my favorite thing. I uh, love it. And noceta into these incisional blocks is an amazing option for long-acting local anesthesia to that area. So you mentioned that it's a liposomal encapsulated bupivacaine solution, uh, which is a correct statement. What makes it different from regular bupivacaine is the duration of analgesia. So if we, if you guys look up Noceta, if you're in the United States, it's Noceta. Um, if you are out, I don't think it's available in other countries yet. So you have to just look at the, I think I that, know they don't have it in Canada yet. Yeah, hopefully other countries are going to be able to get this product because it's really fantastic. Um, what you're going to find though, is that it's only labeled for cranial cruciate ligament surgery in dogs. And then it's labeled as actually a peripheral nerve block for cats. So we have two different indications, but of course in veterinary medicine, we're allowed to use products off label however we want. And putting Noceta into the incision is a very appropriate extra label use of that product. But again, the big difference is you can have analgesia up to 72 hours. That's at least what the FDA approved label states. Nobody's really looked at duration of analgesia past that 72 hour period. So I can't really comment to say, it, you know, I think the human product, there's a human product called Exparel. And I could be wrong, but I want to say in some patients, it actually lasts longer than 72 hours. That's pretty amazing. And the, you know, I would comment the same thing that you have observed is that we have patients that we literally might give one single post-op dose of opioid and that's it. Like they get no CETA block and they are good to go. It's really, truly amazing. Again, if we can combine an NSAID in these animals, we're definitely going to still use the NSAID. We're still going to provide multimodal analgesia, but if we can get them off the opioid, that is fantastic. I mean, the opioid has so many side effects. Again, we're in a shortage. So there's just a lot of reasons why it might be a good idea to get away from using them. And picking this bupivacaine liposomal injectable solution is a great option. Uh, so you mentioned that we did a study, uh, which you're, you're exactly correct. So we had a study published, uh, I wanna say a few months ago in veterinary surgery. And actually the first author is a former student of mine, Dr. Alexandra Carlson. So 
I should give her props for doing all the work on that study because um, she worked really hard <laughs> and did an amazing job. But basically, one of the limitations with Noceta is that once you broach the vial, you should throw that product away after four hours. And the reason, there's a few reasons for that, but the biggest reason is that there's no preservative in that solution. So there's no way to inhibit growth of microorganisms. Uh, you know, any product that has an extended label, like a 28-day label, like Propofol 28 or Alfaxin Multidose, for example, those all have um, preservatives in them that allows us to use them, you know, in a multi-dose manner. Noceta is not like that. And the other problem is that we have a 10 mil vial and a 20 mil vial. Now we have a 10 mil vial. When we wrote this paper, we only had the 20 mil vials. But if you're using an extra label, like if you're doing a cystotomy on a Pomeranian, let's say, you're probably only gonna be using three mils of Noceta in that incision. Like I'm making up numbers, but I think that's probably gonna be about right. And then you're gonna end up throwing away seven or 17 mils, depending on what vial you have. And the- Yeah, no. <laughs> right, the, and the cost per milliliter of this product is very expensive. So I don't know what you guys are paying for it, but I think for the 20 mil vials, we usually pay around $180. I don't know if that's similar to what you guys are, you know, the, the 10 mil vials are obviously less expensive, but I don't know exactly how much they cost. So that's a lot of yeah. money and drug going down the drain, which is terrible. But also, you know, it's, I guess, from a safety perspective, I mean, that's what you should be doing. You should be, you should not be using this product past that four hour period. Nevertheless, we all know in veterinary medicine that we don't read the directions or we choose to ignore them. And I mean, you and I both know that we use drugs way past their expiration date for, oh, yeah. <laughs> for what's right or wrong. We do it. So <laughs> we uh, decided to just assess what would happen if we were using Noceta in a multi-dose manner in our study. And basically we took uh, replicate vials and put some in the fridge and we put some out on the counter. We tried to pick a really like high traffic area. So I would say dirty in air quotes, but let's just go with high traffic <laughs> and where there might be people coming in and out and just, you know, we're, we're trying to mimic a busy hospital basically. And we ended up uh, using aseptic techniques. So I think this is really important comment about our, at least our results is that we were very anal retentive about how we were withdrawing the contents of the vial. So we would wear gloves and we would swipe the top with an alcohol swab. And then we would obviously use a fresh needle and syringe. I mean, which seems like common sense, but I think that the gloves and alcohol swabbing are not commonly done. No, but, but that would be, that would be my advice. And if you're thinking that you're going to start using Noceta over a few days period, then please use gloves and swipe with alcohol, <laughs> please. Uh, so, so anyways, we took out an aliquot every single day for a total of five days. So we started on Monday, we ended on Friday because we also thought that would be a realistic time period. And we um, took out some contents. We ended up 
trying to grow bacteria and fungus just using standard microbiology um, techniques. I'm not a microbiologist, by the way, but we did have a microbiologist on the study that helped us. <laughs> That's your next degree. You'll, you're, you'll just go get a doctorate in microbiology too. Oh gosh, that is such a hard subject for me, um, but it's a fascinating area. So at any rate, we um, tried to, we cultured our samples uh, every single day. We also went ahead and took aliquots to measure the drug concentrations because nobody really knows if the bupivacaine liposomes break down over time. Could they be releasing more bupivacaine? Who knows what could be happening? So, you know, that liposome makes it a safer product, but there's always a, a percent of free drug, and that free drug is actually what's causing the local anesthesia. So what we found overall was that the we were not able to grow any bacteria or fungus following our multiple vial punctures uh, what we did find on one of our control vials on the very last day of the study so basically we cracked a vial on monday but we didn't puncture it until friday and that sat with our other vials we were we did grow aspergillus in one of those control vials and we basically think that had to be environmental contamination because we didn't even broach that vial at all during the whole study. So we didn't grow anything in any of our other vials, but you know, I think there are some limitations that would, I feel the need to at least put them out there <laughs> because what we did is not what a drug company would have to do to get FDA approval to have an extended label. So right. yeah, so we did not do what is standard. I mean, what we did is acceptable and it's been published before, but it's not, it's not saying that you could absolutely use this product for four or five days and you're never going to have a problem. Right. Um, so just, I feel like that's a very important statement that everybody should recognize that we were really anal retentive about aseptic technique, but even if you are anal retentive about aseptic technique, there's always going to be a risk. I think that you could have some sort of contamination. I mean, we didn't have it, but I've read other papers where it has happened and it's hard to know if it's contamination of the vial versus contamination in the environment, you know, there's a million factors involved. Uh, you know, we were doing our study in a dirty microbiology lab. If this was for the FDA, they would be in a sterile room. You would actually have to inoculate the vials with known quantities of common pathogens. So things like E. coli or staph, for example, you go ahead and put that bacteria in the vial and then you see what happens. We didn't do any of that stuff. So again, <laughs> you know, again, we found that nothing grew when we punctured the vial multiple times and that would at least support the use of this product over, let's say, a four-day period if you're using aseptic technique. Now, the other thing we assessed was that free concentration of bupivacaine, and we actually did see a significant increase in the free not liposome encapsulated bupivacaine, but it was only on the last day of the study. So it was statistically significant. I would still argue that it wasn't clinically significant. So even if you wanted to use it, I would be comfortable using it. But if you wanted to be extra careful, I guess you could just use it for, let's say, three or four days instead of five days. Okay. 
How do you, you feel know. about that? Are you guys using it over multiple days or do you throw it away after four hours? No, we do not throw it away after four hours. We keep it for 24 hours. We date and time it, initial it, and we try to be as aseptic as possible. But I do agree that there are definitely been times I've seen people pull it up without gloves, without alcoholing the top of it. So we're not 100%. We could definitely be better in that regard, but we keep ours for 24 hours. And now that I have both surgeons who are kind of really all about the noceta, we go through a 20 ml vial in 24 hours, usually no problem. That's awesome. I'm so glad that they're using it so frequently. Yeah, um, I think that's one of those, like, I think that everybody should be using noceta. Like, it is expensive and I totally get that. But, you know, if you're in a general practice and when you do get going, uh, back into uh, spays and neuters and that kind of stuff. You know, if you're a practice that's doing six spays or if you're doing six procedures, whatever they're, they're spays, and then you do a lump removal and then you do maybe a toe amputation or, you know, like all of those things, you could be utilizing it. And I think especially since it's 10 ml vial now, more general practices can be utilizing it. Absolutely. Um, do you guys volume expand it? You know, we do you can, expand it with saline, yes. Yeah, sometimes that can help make it last a little, like make the vial last a little longer if you have, or if you have like a big amputation on, I don't know, let's say like a mastiff that has an osteosarcoma that fractures and the owner wants to go ahead and proceed with taking the leg off, you know, you could use a 20 mil vial of Noceta and go ahead and volume expand that with some saline. You have to be really careful about what you expand it with, but saline would be fine. Um, did you know in human medicine, they will use an equal number of milligrams of bupivacaine to volume expand? What? Like regular bupivacaine? Yes. Nocita? Yeah, this was actually, I learned this about what? a year ago. I had no idea. It was like mic drop. Um, yeah. And oh, I, my mind is blown right now. I know. It's okay though. It's just, you have to make it equal milligrams. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know. If I was using a hundred milligrams of Noceta, I would use a hundred milligrams of bupivacaine. But if you're not comfortable with that, stick with your saline. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll, well, I'll probably just stick with the saline because I'm lazy when it comes to maths. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> well, we have covered so much and um, we are running out of time. And I uh, just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hopefully we can get some people more comfortable with local blocks. Um, I know that we try to talk about local blocks a lot on the Anesthesia Nerds page and certainly at the symposium every year we run a lab that covers nothing but local blocks. It's like all day regional anesthesia. Um, and so thank you so much, Kristen Messenger, for not only being a kick-ass anesthesiologist, but also being one of our favorite speakers of veterinary anesthesia nerds and contributor to our page and the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Tasha, thank you so much for having me. And it's uh, really lovely to talk to you again. And um, please stay safe and I miss you and thank you for all that you are doing for all of the animals out there. All right, hopefully you guys aren't dealing with too many drug shortages out there. And thanks again to Dr. Kristen Messenger for joining us 
and walking us through what we should do when we find drug shortages, because I'm sure we're going to encounter them a lot in the next coming months. Also, I wanted to give a little shout out to Liz Houston, who is a veterinary technician, um, just all around badass, amazing person. And Liz was one of the very first people to sponsor us at the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds on Patreon. So shout out to Liz, just an amazing technician and great supporter of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds. All right, we hope you guys are having a really great start to your week and um, be safe out there.